0: Hello, I'm Karen Pascal. I'm the Executive Director of the Henry Nowen Society. Welcome to a new episode of Henry Nowen, Now and Then. Our goal at the Henry Nowen Society is to extend the rich spiritual legacy of Henry Nowen to audiences around the world. Each week we endeavor to bring you a new interview with someone who's been deeply influenced by the writings of Henry Nowen, someone whose own writing is an important and valued resource to spiritual seekers. We invite you to share the daily meditations and these podcasts with your friends and family. Through them, we can continue to introduce new audiences to the writings and the teachings of Henry Nouwen, and we can remind each listener that they are beloved by God. Now, let me take a moment to introduce today's guest. Today on this podcast, I have the pleasure of talking with one of my favorite writers, the publisher and editor in chief of Orbis Books, Robert Ellsberg. Robert was the former managing editor of The Catholic Worker. And has edited selected writings, diaries and letters of Dorothy Day, whom he knew personally. He also was a good friend of Henry Nowen, and he published both books written by Henry and some wonderful books about Henry Nowen. In 2016, Robert began an email correspondence with Sister Wendy Beckett, a religious hermit living in England. They wrote back and forth until her death in 2018. These emails are the most marvelous, deep conversation of faith and friendship that I've ever read. Robert, I have simply loved this book. Take us back and tell us how the friendship began.
1: Gladly, thank you very much, Karen. Um, the, the the relationship went long before we began this correspondence. Uh, it actually started in a funny way. I, I knew about Sister Wendy from watching her on television like other people. I found her charming. Uh, I couldn't turn my head away from her uh, when she was going through museums talking about art. I never suspected that I might get to know her, uh, this hermit who lives in a caravan on the grounds of a Carmelite monastery in England. But one day I got an inscrutable little card from Sister Wendy. It had her address label on it, so I could read that, asking if we could uh, spare a, a, a copy of a History of Vatican II that we had published at Orbis Books, where I'm the publisher. And I said, uh, well, gladly I, I sent her those books. It was a very good investment in a future friendship. And from that, uh, we began to exchange notes from time to time, And I eventually even published four volumes of Sister Wendy's uh, writings uh, at, at Orbis. Uh, but as far as our communication, it was just a, occasional friendly and business-like notes uh, written in her absolutely inscrutable handwriting. you 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 leaded them. A Rosetta Stone to interpret what she was saying so they were very frustrating and that was one kind of uh, uh, part of her fortress that protected her from uh, too much interaction with other people Uh, but we exchanged notes from time to time in fact in one of her letters uh, she said "Uh, I enjoy writing to you your letters uh, but if I'm really to live the life of a contemplative uh, I, I really don't have time or space for correspondence unless it's about things that really matter and I thought, well, that's, that's the end of that, that's fine. I was not trying to press the point. So it was all the more remarkable that this exchange between us began several years later. Uh, and the occasion was a, an Easter card that had gone astray. She used to send out uh, cards for Easter and Christmas, pictures of you know, museum cards of her favorite paintings. And this card had not reached me because uh, we had changed our address. Now, by this time she'd moved out of the caravan and into the enclosure of the monastery because she was too old and infirm to live by herself. And she now had the services of an American Carmelite sister, Sister Leslie, who would visit her once a day, bring her food, attend to her needs, uh, which most of her needs were delivering new books from the library. And she would also help her with her correspondence, which Sister Wendy would dictate to her. And she would type onto her laptop computer, which Sister Wendy called her machine. And uh, thus was able to communicate through email. So Sister Leslie wrote to me uh, wrote me to find out about the address, and I wrote back. And I happened to mention that we were publishing a book about uh, Vincent van Gogh, and that evidently interested Sister Wendy, and she wrote me back herself. Uh, she was she wanted to hear more about that. And I began to tell her about the books we were doing in our modern spiritual Masters series uh, that includes a volume on on Henry nowen and Thomas Merton, and many other people. And she was very interested and we began exchanging notes about the subject of holiness and spiritual masters and saints and what that means, a topic of great interest to both of us. And gradually, as I began to share a little bit more about myself, uh, it, it turned into something much deeper as as you've discovered reading the book. Uh, it There was no longer uh, just a kind of artificial subject matter between us, it was really sharing our our hearts on the deepest level. And that continued and extended and grew even deeper and deeper uh, for the next two and a half years as we exchanged letters on almost a daily basis until she died
0: it, it is a fabulous journey that you take us on i mean it just starts as a friendship and you sort of think you're going to exchange letters but it gets deeper and deeper and deeper and one of the things i was so struck by is that the two of you are equals you have a, a, an equality in the sense of your interests, of, of the things you've read, of discussing things in great depth. But, but before I go there into the things that you, you focus on, can you explain to me, what does it mean to be an aesthetic? What does it mean to be a, a contemplative? What, what did it mean to Sister Wendy?
1: Well, first it'd be helpful to, to go back a little bit. Uh, Sister Wendy was born in South Africa Uh, When she was a child, her family moved to Scotland, where her father was a doctor in training. Uh, Later, she uh, entered the uh, religious congregation, the Sisters of Notre Dame de D'Amour. Now, she says that at the age of four, she had a kind of almost mystical sense of the presence of God uh, that was so overpowering as to leave her with absolutely no other doubt or conviction or certainty, except that she was going to spend her whole life being with God. So she couldn't wait until she was old enough to become a nun, which was at the age of 16. She joined this this religious congregation. Now she thought that in becoming a nun, uh, she would just spend all her time in prayer uh, without having shopped around and and learned that there are different kinds of congregations. Uh, She'd been taught by this uh, congregation of teaching sisters, it was a teaching order. And so that meant that her life would be teaching school, Uh, school children, teenagers, Uh, She went to Oxford and and got a superb education there. Uh, She went uh, got a teaching certificate, went back to South Africa to be a teacher. But she found it a very oppressive life for her that did not leave her the space that she really wanted to uh, devote herself to to prayer all the time. That's what she she felt called to. And when she asked for more time for, for prayer, her superiors told her, well, that's not your vocation. That's not what God wants you to do. So she... Uh, accepted that, uh, but eventually she had uh, a series of epileptic seizures, and really her her whole body kind of rebelled. And they decided, okay, let's let her have her heart's desire, and they dispensed her from her religious vows, and she became uh, recognized by a local bishop as as a consecrated virgin and and hermit. Uh, it's really a, a kind of, of of total life of of contemplation and prayer. A much, much like the life of, of of an anchoress or something like Julian of Norwich from the 14th century. Now, in those days, that meant actually being sealed up in the walls, you know, next to a church. Uh, in her case, she actually said she would have loved a life like that, except that uh, Julian of Norwich had a window on, onto the street where people could could talk to her and ask her questions. She said, "I wouldn't like that part of it." So she would, she would have liked to be totally enclosed. Uh, She was given permission to live on the grounds of a Carmelite monastery. So she wasn't an actual Carmelite. Now, Carmelites are a contemplative order. They spend a lot of time in prayer, not enough for Sister Wendy. She would uh, pray about seven or eight hours a day, just by herself, not spoken prayers, not reading the breviary, just in silent contemplation. Uh, And then the rest of the time, she considered it all prayer. She would be reading books or looking at art pictures. Uh, She would attend mass once a day. And she lived in a little trailer, a caravan, on the grounds of this Carmelite monastery. Now, in the 1990s, she was, it's a long, hilarious story, but she was somehow discovered by the BBC. And they gave her her own television program, Sister Wendy's Odyssey, which became a huge international hit. It was on public television in the United States. And she would go to museums uh, without any script and would you know, pick certain pictures she wanted to talk about. And she would just walk up to them. And in front of the camera in just one take, uh, nothing written down, she would give these marvelous kind of meditations on what she saw there. Uh, and she became you know, quite quite the celebrity. And people, you could, you could say, well, that what did that have to do with being a, a contemplative hermit? But she managed to to do that and sort of preserve this kind of interior sense of enclosure <laughs> so that she wasn't really touched or affected by the world that she encountered. Uh, focused exactly on what she wanted to say and she felt that it was really not about art it was really for her a religious a spiritual ministry of talking about beauty uh, talking about truth and talking about a way of seeing deeply into into the heart of reality with a contemplative eye and that that would affect people and affect the way they live and affect the way they see everything talking about god to people who aren't comfortable or familiar with the language of god but when that was all over, she was very happy to return to her her contemplative life. So she said she would, she would, uh, you know, get up at at um, you know ten o'clock at night or something like that. And and the time actually began to go back further. She said she only slept a few hours every evening. She'd go to bed around six, sleep for a few hours, and then she'd get up and she'd sit in the darkness of her cell uh, for the rest of the night until it was time to go to mass the next morning. But she uh, achieved this level where everything was prayer for her because prayer for her was simply being in the presence of God. Uh, That was her life. And her life had not been very much a matter of being involved in particular kinds of friendships or relationships with other people. And that was not just a matter of vocation for her. It was also a reflection of her her temperament and personality. Uh, She never had really felt like she belonged with other people, always felt like she was strange, that people didn't understand her, that she was a misfit. And that made it all the more remarkable to me that somehow I unlocked something in her uh, that allowed her not only to let me in, uh, but to let herself out, and uh, the kind of connection between our hearts that occurred in these in these years together.
0: Something I was so aware of as i as I read the book is the depth of your friendship. It becomes deeper and deeper and more trusting. And I was very touched by the fact she really sees you. It isn't that you just really see her. And, and it is such a treat to meet this woman. I mean, line upon line that you want to go back and save her. But she also pulls you into this conversation that is, gets deeper and richer and more and more meaningful. I, it's something that I just loved about the book. Uh, you must have loved it too. It's wonderful to be seen. It's wonderful when somebody kind of gets you.
1: Totally, and and you know when you're in a relationship with someone like that, in a unique kind of relationship, you discover things about yourself that you wouldn't know. Um, the fact of just reflecting on my daily life or on things going on in my life or in my past, reflecting on the kind of my own peculiar kind of spiritual journey, uh, having someone there who is sitting there. Taking that in and listening in this very non-judgmental and understanding way, uh, you know, it, it makes you see things and understand things about yourself that, that you wouldn't recognize except through someone else's eyes. And, and evidently, I, I did the same for her. She is a person who had very definite uh, aversion to self-examination or thinking uh, about her interior life uh, or much less describing that to someone else or even looking back at the past she lived so totally in the present moment of her uh relationship with god uh and yet as i began to share things about myself it kind of elicited some response in her in herself and i think she began finding herself recollect, recollecting things and sharing things about her childhood and her own her own story that that she hadn't really thought about before and the kind of patterns that began to emerge uh it was it was it was it was just a kind of remarkable thing to 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 witness someone reading this described it as a kind of dance uh between the two of us dance partners uh one uh, 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 you know an old hermit in a wheelchair and me thousands of miles away uh living my own life in the world uh, but there was this kind of way in which we uh just uh, i don't know prompted or triggered Uh, reflections or or understandings in in one another in the course of of talking about things that really mattered to us.
0: The sheer wonder that you were, um, that it was emails, things could go back quite quickly, like you could say something one day and you were here the next day. There was an immediacy to it, which I thought was really quite wonderful. Certainly an intimacy, an amazing, I don't, I just felt like layer upon layer was disappearing and you were, the two of you were getting more and more honest And more and more real. And and I felt I I love this business about just seeing each other, really seeing the real person Mm. and and saying yes to that person. And that was kind of what I, I saw in this dialogue that was happening between the two of you. One of the things that I loved was I loved the joy that I find in her. There's a phenomenal joy. I mean, that alone would draw me to her as a model for faith. Did you see that? I mean, obviously you had to see it. I mean, it, it just keeps coming because she has a joy in Jesus, a, a purity of her joy.
1: You know, she was a hilarious person. She had a tremendous sense of wit and, and sense of humor uh, without you know telling jokes or anything like that. Uh, and yes. the funny thing is she even describes when she, a time when she was a, a young uh, novice, when she was in, in university, and she said a, a Dominican priest uh, that she met, she never saw him again, uh, she happened to talk to him, and he said, "You know what I really miss in you is a kind of I don't detect a sense of joy." And she thought that was the strangest thing uh, to say. She'd never thought about that as a as a virtue or as a good thing to be joyful. And then she began to think about how much Scripture talks about joy, and how much uh, Jesus talks about joy. And she, I think, you know, t- tried to incorporate that as 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 a, a part of her discipline. Uh, much of the way Dorothy Day you know, talked about the duty of delight. Um, there was a, a lightness about uh, uh, Sister Wendy. There was nothing morbid uh, uh, about her. Uh, and you, you had to be a joyful person, I think, to spend to, to, to spend so much of your life looking at, at art and beauty and seeing that as a, a kind of entryway into reflecting on the nature of God and the nature of, of, of creation. Uh, so I think that was, that was, that was very much part of her personality and her spirituality.
0: Her life had a great simplicity to it. Amazing. Like you don't get the feeling that she even had a beautiful view to look at. It was so, as you just, as she describes where she's living and the simplicity of her meals and her, I mean, there's a part that just opens volumes to me about a, a world that I, I couldn't imagine. And yet there was a richness in it incredible richness in her in her intellect and in her spiritual depth um that that was so striking to me what i think is very funny there are certain themes that go through the book that i Mm. i quite enjoy obviously she has a passion for a number of the writers that you have a passion for Mm. first of all dorothy day she's a great obviously has been inspired by and that's a place the two of you connect maybe you might just tell me a little bit about that
1: well that was probably one of the things that that you know connected her with me originally uh knowing that i had uh, worked with dorothy day and edited her writings. in fact uh she endorsed i think one or two of the books that i uh, edited of dorothy day's writings and early on before this correspondence began she told me that she'd been invited to be on a bbc program uh to talk about three books that she would take to a desert island and one of them was dorothy day's diaries which i had edited uh so she said that it was uh she thought that dorothy day was a great saint of our time uh the fact that i knew her and i've done edited her writings and and in fact have been involved in the in the process of her cause for canonization uh she said it made her feel like that old song uh i i'll get it wrong but you know i I, I, I danced with a girl who danced with a man who danced with the Prince of Wales, or something. I got it backwards there, but something like that she felt in touch with the pulse, uh, a finger on the pulse of the church, she said. Uh, the fact that, uh, that Dorothy lived her, this deep spirituality, encounter with Christ in the world, uh, and that she was a contemplative inaction in, a, in effect, was something that she uh, greatly admired. Uh, and of course, her courage and her service of the poor, but uh, the fact that I think that that she um, that she managed to to live such a a, a life of, of of inwardness, surrounded by so much chaos and so much distraction, whereas of course in her case she felt that she had the enormous privilege of of being able to live that life without any distraction, uh, which is just the way she liked it. Uh, but so Dorothy Day was somebody that we exchanged a lot of, of thoughts about. And of course, there were other people like uh, Thomas Merton, where there was a little more contention between us. And then, of course, our dear friend, Henry Nowen. Um, those are just some of the people that re- recurred frequently in our conversation.
0: I love the fact that over the two-year period of your conversations, two to three-year period, she was in a growth mode. I mean, she was very set on her opinions of Merton, and she would often put forward her attitude about that but I also felt like there was a becoming. Uh, you know, this was a woman who didn't stay fixed. She moved in her thinking. And I, I was very touched by that because I I love people who grow. I love people who, who aren't in the same place they were a year ago or two years ago. I just, I, I really love that. And I sense that about her. I also sense she had a very honest assessment of Henry now. And tell me a little bit of, because I know you brought him to the table and I could hear what she had to say there. What did you think of her assessment of Henry?
1: Well, first, it's interesting to compare him to, with her feelings about about Thomas Merton, uh, which were confusing to me in in the beginning and and uh, fascinating at the same time. She was absolutely obsessed with Thomas Merton. She's the one who was always bringing him up, uh, and of course, I've had a lifelong uh, interest and in, could say kind of devotion to Thomas Merton, uh, notwithstanding his you know his own. Uh, faults and things that he admitted about himself but for me uh, what was so fascinating was the way that merton never held still that he was always on this ongoing search this this journey uh discarding one kind of mask uh to try to find his true self and there were many missteps along the way uh but i i think of him as as not so much as a saint as a kind of spiritual explorer uh, who is uh, constantly trying to go deeper and deeper into the heart of his vocation. Now, she saw something very different. She, saw, as, a, as a contemplative and as a religious, she f- she found a kind of doubleness and falseness about him. She thought he was brilliant, uh, but she thought there was a kind of glibness that he spoke too quickly and too easily about many things. Uh, she felt that he was had a spirit of disobedience to the monastic rule, that he was in his journals, show him uh, kind of grumbling all the time about his abbot and the fellow monks and this sort of thing, um, and we didn't seem to be able to get past that. Uh, she would always bring it up. She would say she was reading him all the time from cover to cover, and always expressing this ambivalence. And I would push back and I would say, well, I think that you know Merton uh, has his limitations, but he he represents a kind of a explorer, a bridge between different kind of models of contemplative life and and in doing so he's opened the kind of world of contemplation to, to lots of other people in the world um and his his concern about social justice and peace that you know very much redefined kind of the the, the, the monastic vocation and anyway she, she she would have none of that and then amazingly you know a couple of years into this there's this enormous turnaround now you say that she's a person who is growing and capable of growth well clearly she was but well, that's not something, she didn't show a lot of evidence of that, uh, frankly. She, she was the kind of person who says, what I've written, I have written. You know, she said she never corrected a single word in any of her books. It was all just done in one draft. <laughs> she said maybe it would have been better if I'd, if I'd taken a second draft, but she didn't see the point. Same thing with her television uh, broadcast. She never took a second take. She would just get up there, think about what she wanted to say, and she would just get up and deliver it extemporaneously without notes. I mean, she was a total genius. Uh, she was curious. She was always expanding her interest and her knowledge in different things, amazingly current on things going on in the church and uh, theology. Uh, she was an avid and voracious reader of all, books of all kinds. Anything I send, she would read it overnight and give these expert opinions and judgments the next day. But she was pretty fixed in her ideas of things her assessments of what she thought was true. And there was a falseness that she saw in Thomas Merton. Well, then suddenly that changed and she said one day you know i feel i've been completely wrong about thomas merton i've completely misjudged him and i'm humble enough to to say that that reflects on me and my own limitations my own smallness uh, compared to him she said you know i i've come to i should have realized a long time ago that that even his wrongness was so deeply rooted in his rightness and for her the rightness was his longing for god his hunger for god that was always there." and that she felt from god's point of view uh you know canceled out any other limitations you might have now i th- i found that you know you have to kind of read that far in the book to to appreciate it but it was absolutely astonishing to me if there was one thing that she was obsessed about and had such definite opinions about it was thomas merton and for her to to make that kind of change i compared it in the book and i don't know whether i'm overstating it but to me it felt like a an analogy to the experience that Thomas Merton himself described you know famously in his journals uh, back when he'd been a monk for many to- years and he went into Louisville and he had this kind of revelation at the corner of Fourth and Walnut as all students of Merton know, where he said that you know I suddenly saw that all these people on the street they they were I was one of them, they were one of me, we were all one uh, everybody's shining like the sun he said he said, uh, it was like awakening from a dream of separateness, he said. And what he meant by that was this idea of the ascetic life in the monastery as this special holy place that's set apart from all the complexity and compromise and sin of the world. Uh, That was a false conception. He was waking up from this dream. And after that, his, his, his spirituality, his work took a completely different turn. Instead of just writing about prayer and spirituality, he began to look with compassion about subjects of social justice and the poor and nuclear war, racism, uh, and it led into his exploration of dialogue with uh, Buddhism and other religions. Uh, so it it represented a deep turning point in his own path in spiritual spiritual life. I felt that there was something like that going on here with Sister wendy in in in, a, in effect awakening from uh, a, a kind of rigid sort of sense of the proper role of a monastic or a, or, or a contemplative, uh, to see that there was more going on there than, than she had allowed for. And I, it's hard for me not to think, not that I, I planted those ideas in her mind, but that just this kind of uh, long patient back and forth relationship that we d- developed over, over a couple of years that I, I, I dare say she'd never really had with anybody, uh, was an opportunity to kind of test and enlarge some of her ideas and even to become you know <laughs> a less judgmental person you might say and i would say a, a more loving person more compassionate person in that sense uh not that she you know needed some kind of great spiritual growth uh after after this extraordinary life as a, as a mystic and contemplative but i think that you know she was so focused on the the love of god and i think in the course of our correspondence she she opened herself to a capacity for a, a, maybe a different kind of love, and it affected the way she saw things, just as she hoped that looking at paintings would affect the way people see things. You know, now getting to Henry Nowen. Yes, uh, Henry Nowen was some, not somebody she'd really studied caref- carefully, and and people make facile you know comparisons between Nowen and and, and, and Merton, of course, because they were both very famous and influential spiritual writers. Uh, but there's no question that you know Merton is in a Kind of different universe in terms of, as as a as a, a intellectual and a thinker and philosopher and writer et cetera. And Merton was was so much, I mean Nalan was so much more of a of a of a of a shepherd a pastor you know a a spiritual master I think who was famous for the fact that he shared you know, so much the resources of his own complicated personality. Uh, and that kind of tone of intimacy that he established with people uh, made people feel very connected with him and, and made them think that you don't have to be a perfect person to to to, to live the spiritual life and to, to realize that you're beloved uh, of, of god um, on the other hand there were there were obvious you know very parallels between their their journeys because both of them were kind of searchers both of them were explorers Henry with this tremendous restlessness and uh you know he even thought of you know maybe be like a sort of make-believe trappist monk like merton live in a monastery for part of the year or something but he also went to latin america and he followed around with a circus and he taught in various universities and then you know toward the end of his life he finds the kind of environment the the ambiance at large that was really the home that he'd been searching for all along and he thinks okay now i found my true home but then he discovers that that doesn't resolve all the problems that he brought with him or the personality that he brought with him. And he had to still keep working out of that sense of his own woundedness and uh, and, and finally coming to almost accept that wound as a gift, uh, that that was was a gateway for him to to for access to the love of God, even though it was involved a lot of personal anxiety and suffering. So you see them both then kind of on this onward journey and then they both die very suddenly. You know, Merton in Thailand, the age of 53, uh, now in, in, in Amsterdam at the age of, of 64. Uh, and, but you have the sense that that they were on this trajectory. They were, you know, they were kind of launching off uh, into the next uh, steps somehow after having accomplished their mission in this life. So, you know, it, there, there is a way in which it makes a lot of sense to kind of think of these two. Together, And I do all the time as people that I wouldn't necessarily regard as saints, but as a different kind of witness and uh, a different kind of messenger uh, about about the spiritual life and, and what we are called to do in terms of, of exploring and, and sometimes going places that are uh, where we travel without maps and have to figure it out for ourselves, um, like, you know. <laughs> You, to use Nowen's, uh you know, kind of met- metaphor of, of the flying trapeze, you know, uh, a certain kind of trust and faith um, that carried them all the way to the to to the end. Now, I think that so. She had this complicated obsession with Merton. In the case of Nowen, she said, "I I appreciate him a lot. I think that he did not have the complexity of Merton. He didn't sing many different songs. He sang one song." But he sang it very well. <laughs> and she felt in that sense there was a from her point of view a deeper truth in nowen than she found in in merton. Uh, nowen was was very much uh, what you saw was what you got <laughs> sort of, and there was a kind of truth and and authenticity about him, even though she was he was exactly the kind of person that she would never want to spend time with. Uh, she was a person who who was so overwhelmed by the stimulation and the distraction of the world that in order to kind of function, she just really had to be contained and enclosed uh, in her her cell. And there was a little space for a relationship like the one she had with me that was at a distance and it was just through, you know, once a day through an email or something like that. Uh, But she said, you know, if some friends are are demanding i'd say you know now and would be bankrupting at least you know for her it, his just kind of energy and angst and you know expressiveness would have just made her want to crawl into a, into a shell you know i think lock the door uh and yet she had deep respect for 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 him and the 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 pathos and the poignancy of of his kind of ministry and his his message but, you know, she said some, I mean, I thought there was a striking thing that I, I, uh, I, I quoted even the epilogue. It was one of the last things that she said about, about Merton and Nowen. She said, there is much self-deception and muddle in their lives, and yet there is an unwavering concentration on God. I think many people would find this very encouraging, that it's the direction that matters, the desire, and not the spiritual achievements, as it were. Uh, and I thought that was, you know, in her her amazing way, she in just in one sense she could kind of capture capture them in some way. You know?
0: I love that. There was another thing that weaves its way through the book, and I really enjoyed it. And it was a, a shared love for and uh, support for the Pope. I just found that very moving. It seemed that the she took deeply to heart what was going on and so do you obviously and the two of you in this dialogue it it moved me a great deal to listen to this uh, between you
1: that was something that we we definitely share uh, love of the pope uh i have you know at orbis published many books by and about him i've edited uh, volumes of his writings so i've spent a lot of time going over them and almost from the very first moment when he appeared on the balcony at saint peter's uh he just you know captured my heart and uh and i think that what the pope did and what sister wendy could see very c- clearly was that he was really trying to call the church to follow jesus now that's exactly the message that that henry nowen had <laughs> which was to you know not be so obsessed of, about the institution and about doctrines and theology and that, that the thing is you know is your is your heart with jesus Uh, Do you are you trying to live more like Jesus? Uh, The church should look more like Jesus. Uh, And and Sister Wendy understood that completely and identified with that. And and it's kind of interesting because, you know, again, people could see her in this medieval looking habit and think, oh, she's one of those really old fashioned uh, nuns or something. Uh, She's going to be very traditionalist. She's going to care very much about, uh, you know, how Vatican II has spoiled everything or something like that not at all her her attitude. She had this openness and this deep understanding, which we both shared, That which was that, you know, of, of love for the, the Pope and, and wanting to encourage him, support him with our, our, our prayers. You know, the Pope always, you know, ends every speech was, please pray for me. Uh, and she was co- very aware of the opposition that he faces. And she felt it was just extraordinary that the parallels between the the opposition that that the Pope generates among bishops and Catholics, uh, and the opposition that Jesus faced, uh, around very much the same issues, uh, that he's is too free and easy with the law and doctrine and tradition, that he's trying to change things, that he's that he's too merciful, that he likes to hang around with outsiders instead of you know, good religious people, and he's. Uh, and yet he began his his, his, you know, his first speech at the Conclave where he was elected Pope. In fact, it probably you know, won the hearts of, of the cardinals there and they elected him as Pope. He gave this extraordinary just four-minute speech that, that encapsulated his whole ministry where he said that uh, the, you know, the great problem for the church is when it becomes enclosed in self-referentiality. It lives, lives for itself, of itself, by itself. Uh, where instead of following jesus out to the margins and the peripheries uh, that's what evangelization is and a church that that doesn't do that has become sick you know so for me he has been this great doctor of the church a healer of the church and of the world uh and i i would from time to time write him letters uh that were both you know to tell him about what we were doing at orbis to promote his 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 mission and agenda but also just to express my personal devotion and support and, and prayers for him, and she would say, "You know, keep on writing him those letters. It doesn't matter if he ever sees them or not. I'm sure the intention will will reach him, and they'll mean so much to him." Uh, so I was. They were partly written for Sister Wendy's benefit too, and uh, it, of course, in the epilogue to the book, I describe some of the things that happened in the in the year after she died, and. One of those I, I finally got a, a letter back from my my pen pal, my unrequited pen pal Pope Francis. Uh and it was so funny in the letter, he said, I'm so glad to hear about your your uh devotion to Thomas Merton and Dorothy Day. <laughs> and I knew she would uh laugh at that. Um, but yes, uh she we we both felt that that Pope Francis is one of the great lights of, of our time and and Privileged to be living in this franciscan era
0: we certainly are privileged to be living in this franciscan era i agree with you completely i want to talk about two other wonderful parts in this book and i wouldn't normally expect to be saying this is wonderful because i'm the kind of person when somebody starts to tell me their dream i'm like oh my eyes glaze over of course but there are dreams in this book from you and from Sister Wendy, and it's so interesting. And it just struck me there's such intimacy in that. There's such, you know, when you trust each other with a dream, but not just a dream, you also get interpretations back. In other words, mm-hmm. you don't get away with just saying, I had this really weird dream last night. Mm-hmm. But you you share your dreams, she thinks about it and comes back and challenges you with some thoughts about it, and vice versa. Mm-hmm. And I just, I, I loved that. Tell me a little bit about, uh, about that aspect of your friendship
1: as I was editing the book, I, I left out a lot of the dreams because I thought, oh, people are going to start rolling their eyes. Uh, here comes another one of his dreams. Uh, you know, I and I apologize. I said, you know, you know, if you don't want to hear about this, I won't do it. But she was fascinated by them. Uh, and at that time, I don't so much anymore. Uh, uh, but I, I used to have these absolutely uh, extraordinary prophetic kinds of dreams where I would be you know, meeting with people like like Dorothy Day or Pope John Paul II or Mother Teresa or something, have these conversations with them. Uh, I had to have deep dreams in which, you know, Pope Francis and I were walking along, and he'd say, "Why don't you come home? Stay with me tonight." And we'd climb up this craggy cliff in like a Irish monastery, and I'd be thinking, "Gosh, this guy's—he's too old to have to live like this. He should have a more comfortable, you know, apartment or something." And uh, we sat and began to talk, and he said, "Well, you've." you've talked a lot about what you do, but your, your life is about more than what you do. Um, and so I began to tell him about my children and he began to ask questions about that. And, and then he said, you know, it's getting late now, you should stay the night here. You know, it's almost like you know, the road to Emmaus or something like that. And anyway, she, she it, they, they, they could sound like I was making this all up, but it was real. Now she began to share her dreams too. And her dreams were also fantastically symbolic and often had a a deep expression of the relation between art and her contemplative uh, uh, vocation, because a lot of her dreams involved looking at at paintings and looking at at art objects and interpreting them. There was one in particular that I thought was just amazing. Uh, I said, if if dreams could be awarded prizes, you know, I would say, well done, Sister Wendy. I was in awe of this dream. She said that she was in the dream, there had three parts to it. In the first part, she was looking at paintings of lakes and admiring these beautiful paintings of lakes. And then at a certain point, the lakes became real lakes and she was walking around these lakes. But then in the third part of the dream, the, lake, the lakes were inside of her. And at this point she realized that the lakes were polluted in some way, they were damaged. And somehow through her own prayer, her own interior heart, I pictured it as almost like dialysis or something, that the lakes were being purified and cleansed. And she said that seemed to me like a statement or expression of what the Christian life is: that in the suffering of Christ and the cross, we take on the whole suffering of the world within ourselves, and through our love and our prayer and our devotion, uh, we're somehow contributing to the cleansing or the purification of of the world. And she said that's why we don't just flit off to heaven because God's lakes need us. <laughs> I I it it gave me some insight for me into what looking at paintings meant for her uh, that there was that the that the paintings were about reality in some deep level and she took that reality deeply inside of herself not just to think about it or to look at it but to interact with it in some way that had consequences on that reality or that world that it represents. Uh, And taking beauty into herself and taking even ugly images into herself. uh, That was all kind of parallel to the way that she took the world into her heart uh, in her life of prayer.
0: I loved that um, she really opened up in a sense. She pulled out of you themes that became part of this two-year journey. Your father was one of them. I mean, that was quite fascinating to me. Daniel Ellsberg, very well known, uh, you know, as the as the person who, with the Pentagon Papers, you know, was willing to go to jail for 115 years. I mean, what an important kind of influence in your life. But in a way, she also kind of, I thought she called you back into a, that relationship at a certain point or encouraged you in it. I, at least it seems like an arc within the story because we go from that, Right through to the movie, so tell me a bit about that.
1: Well, yes, early on, just in kind of setting the stage for her, I I said, uh, you know, you may have heard of my father's quite famous person, Daniel Ellsberg, and she knew about the Pentagon Papers somewhat, didn't really know that Watergate and Vietnam story very well, so I shared some things about that, and it was part of the way that I began to open up more about my own journey and the way that things in my early life, my relationship with my father, who is you know, obviously a, a heroic a person, a brilliant person and a kind of overwhelming personality. And that is a great privilege, you know, to have someone like that as your father. But it also is a certain kind of burden and it's uh, a lot to live up to. And a lot of my life feeling, you know, as a child, very inadequate compared to this uh, larger than life kind of person who I, you know, for a lot of time, I, I felt didn't really know me all that well. Um, and I had gone on, you know, through my life at the Catholic worker and then coming to Orbis Books, becoming a religious publisher. Um, but a writer and a publisher very concerned about the relation between faith and the world, social justice and peace, you know, felt that I had been very much uh, inspired in my vocation by impulses that, that he planted in me at a very young age. Um, but she, she really understood in a deeper way, I think, than most people do. What the kind of balance balancing act there was in my own heart uh between the the difficulties of that, growing up with a father who was on trial, facing one hundred and fifteen years, uh having the Nix administration you know literally trying to kill him uh, and having him constantly going to jail and witnessing on this kind of great stage and and my living this more quiet you know, domestic life with uh, raising children and being a writer and publisher um I came to the point, you know, where we became very close, uh, especially be- through my using my editorial skills. He, he finally came to me and said, I need your help. And I helped him first uh, finish his first memoir about the Pentagon Papers in Vietnam. And then during the course of the time when I was corresponding with Sister Wendy, I was working with him on what he felt was the last great uh, accomplishment of his life, which was to write a, a memoir about the... Uh, what he calls the doomsday machine, the, the the whole system of preparation for nuclear war, uh, which has been his lifelong obsession. And he felt that that his life would, would be a failure if, if it ended before he'd done everything possible he could do to warn people about this danger. Uh, but he was utterly blocked in his writing. He'd been working on this for decades, literally. Uh, but he finally hit rock bottom <laughs> and asked for my help. And over a period of a couple of years, we talked every single day, and I helped him with drafting things and, and rewriting things and going back and forth and It was an extremely rewarding experience for me uh, as a son, among other things, to be able to do that for my father and um, and to have him recognize that as a labor of love and as uh, a contribution that I had made to his life and his work through my own professional skills as well as my you know uh filial devotion um and she she had a very interesting kind of take which was that you know my parents had divorced when i was young i grew up with my mother uh, who was an episcopalian who was uh was didn't want to have anything to do with uh um, publicity or being known or recognized or uh considering that her happiness or her Role in life was to save the world. Uh, she wanted her children to be happy and to be good people, you know. And she, uh, Sister Wendy, said, you know, you had a very fortunate balance between these influences. That if it had been just your father, uh, it would have been just too hard to 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 live up to and and overwhelming. Uh, if it had been just your mother, you might have become too soft. <laughs> but she said you have, you know, learned you know, you've got the 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 best from your father. Both in what you are and what you what you are not, and she felt that both in my um, in in the way that he had contributed to my own dedication to my vocation, and my own way of serving the cause of peace and justice in the world, uh, I had taken great lessons from him. But I would also taken lessons, you know, perhaps in how to be a better father. <laughs> so, yes, there was, the, you know, Sister Wendy almost was like. I felt like she was like a mother, you know to me in these in these letters. and uh, and I often felt like I said to her things that I wish I'd said to my mother or that I could have said to my mother.
0: I found it was so touching to me. She was so concerned about your health. She was really concerned that you slow down. And clearly, you went through some health issues in the midst of this this letter exchange and and uh, I just felt her her love for you and your love for her, I mean, over, it just kept getting deeper and deeper and more tender. There's so much kindness on the page. That's a rarity nowadays that we get allowed to be in on the kindness of others. But there was a kindness on the page that just I treasured as I read it. I really treasured it as I read it. And I I know people are going to love this book. It, It's wonderful. I just I, I, I wholly endorse it right now. I found myself, I will say one thing. You have the most interesting dialogues. Both of you are so well-read. I mean, it's just incredible the depth that the two of you have. And I was left with wanting to read all the books you were talking about. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to be left out. I wanted to come into the discussion. And there was lots there that I had not read. And it was really special to me. I I would say this is a book that plants seeds. Um, I will really encourage Uh, whoever's listening, I'd say, please, 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 you're going to love this book. It's something very, very special. It really is. And it will bring you closer to God. That's all I can say. It will, because honestly, you really are challenged by Sister Wendy and and what it means to to have a love for Jesus and, and how she expresses that. But I'm also challenged by you, Robert, I really am. I'm, I'm looking at the pattern of your life and going, boy, you you hang with some very special people, and you seem to find your way to those people who are changing the world, but who love God deeply. And I, I respect that so much.
1: Well, thank you, uh, Karen, very much. I think that that you know, would uh, justify Sister Wendy's trust in this process. I think she, she began to feel that, that, that it might have a message for people. And it was very close to the message that she had always tried to communicate you know, through her art programs uh, she wanted to she wouldn't care if people got to know her or love her better uh, although I'm happy if they do uh, she wanted people to love God more and to see how God was present in their lives whether they recognize it or not that was one of the things that that you know she's shown a mirror onto me and I and, and made me think so much of the way that God's grace has been present in my life, and, and but not just in the great moments of awakening or achievement or enlightenment, but in the times of of, of darkness and brokenness and, and confusion. And the, the most gratifying response that I've had from people, and I've had a lot of responses like this, people saying, reading your book made me think more about my own life. Uh, and in that sense, I wanted people to feel that they were a part of this conversation, that it wasn't just between me and Sister Wendy. But they were being drawn into a, uh, a kind of walking meditation uh, that they were part of, a community of friendship, uh, in which they might uh, really begin to awaken to that sense that that motto that Sister Wendy had when she's, she often liked to say, This is heaven. Uh, heaven is all around us, it's not in some other world, it's not after we die. Uh, it's a matter of having the eyes to see it, uh, even though it's disguised in various ways. And I, and I hope that this is a book, you, you enter into it, and by the end, uh, you have that sense of, of, of touching something beautiful and true.
0: She, she says this lovely line about you and your writing. She says, anything you write has the warmth of the Holy Spirit in it, and I agree with that. I would agree with that about your writing. It's difficult to read this book because I'm falling in love with the two of you, both of you. And at the same time, I know the book's going to end. And I know it's going to end because Sister Wendy is not going to live. I know that already as I read it. And so there is a kind of anticipation there that I find hard. Mm-hmm. But I love how she reads or how she tells us about the joy, the anticipation she has. that Finally, this will be over and she'll be face to face with God. She has beautiful expressions about that. It, it It's a book. If you are in some way faced with uh, dying either around you or in you, this is a book that is very, I think, very rich and helpful just because of where she comes to.
1: Well, she had um, she spent every single day of her life <laughs> kind of living in the presence of, of God, you know, uh, in prayer and the anticipation of being face to face, you know, with her, her creator, her beloved, you know, was something that she looked forward to, not in a morbid way, not because she was tired of life. Uh, you know, from the very first letter, she was saying that here she is you know, too old to live in a caravan anymore, uh, living, you know, just in this little room without a view, you know, without any windows, basically, in this Carmelite monastery. Uh, and she said, you have to understand, this is the golden time of my life, the happiest time of my life. And every time she would have a little heart attack or something, she would think, okay, uh, this is maybe preparing the, the gateway to the best that's yet to come, you know. She, uh, th- the last message that she sent to me and to all of her friends was not just to me, where she announced that she was moving to a hospice. It was just a few days before she died. Uh, it was too much of a burden for the sisters to care for her. And uh, she didn't want to be bothered. She said, uh, you know, if you hear that I have you know, made that transition, please rejoice with me, know how happy I am. And then there was a PS at the end, how embarrassing it'll be if I don't actually die after all of this.
0: <laughs> uh, there was one little phrase that which I thought was very sweet. As you saw her declining, you were wanting to relieve her of any responsibility or tension of having to respond to you. Or, you know, there was that whole process somewhere in the middle where there was even some thought that she was going to do a book on icons, and then she kind of ran out of the strength to consider that. But there was a lovely expression, she said, and maybe this is where we'll close. She said about you, so many lives would be impoverished without Robert in them. And Robert, I agree. many lives with the impoverished without you in them i love the books you choose to publish uh, i would encourage people and we will have lots of links with this podcast to orbis and to books that you have published but i would especially encourage them that this is one they must get dearest sister wendy a surprising story of faith and friendship thank you so much robert uh, rich and wonderful to be with you again and to hear you and uh, and truly to know more of you through this book, which I have really enjoyed.
1: Thank you. Thank you Thank you so much, Karen.
0: Thank you, Robert, for this wonderful book. As Mirabai Starr wrote in her comments, this book blew open the gates of my heart. What a quietly magnificent example of a spiritual friendship. Thank you for taking time to listen. I hope these interviews and stories continue to bless and encourage you. I trust you'll come away from this interview with Robert Ellsberg, as inspired and as moved as I was. If you enjoyed today's podcast, we'd be so grateful if you'd take time to give it a stellar review or a thumbs up or share it with your friends and family. As well, you'll find links in the show notes for our website and any content, resources, or books discussed in this episode. There's even a link to books to get you started in case you're new to the writings of Henry Nouwen. Thanks for listening. Until next time.